Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad that you've joined us. For many students, teachers, and families across Michigan, today is the first day back to in-person learning after months and months and months of disruption because of COVID-19. Even more students are going to return to classrooms in the coming weeks. Many schools are still offering in-person instruction as part of the hybrid model where students spend a couple days at school each week and a couple days with virtual learning. And that allows schools to more easily enforce social distancing and other safety measures to prevent the spread of the virus. But a lot of people are still concerned about the risk to students and teachers as more and more School districts open their doors literally to students coming back. And that's despite growing evidence that schools have not really been a major source of infections or outbreaks during the pandemic. As we've talked about recently on this show, there's no such thing as zero risk of viral spread at schools at this stage of the pandemic. But the question is, why is now the right time to reopen schools in so many districts? Here to talk about weighing the risks that exist against the benefits of in-person schooling is State Superintendent Dr. Michael Rice. Dr. Rice, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you very much for having me, Stephen. I appreciate it. So let's start with that, that particular question I just asked. What is it about today, March 1st, that makes it the right time to have so many districts literally reopen and welcome kids back to physical in-school learning? Well, the governor has uh, set March 1 as a, as a target for, uh, for having young people back in school, or at least having the option to be back in school. Look, we've had young people in school uh, this year in particular districts the entire year, with the exception of that four-week period in November and December, when the governor, because of rising numbers, felt that high schools needed to close for in-person instruction. If you look at the percentage of districts across the state that were in-person or had an in-person option in September, it was quite high. It was quite high in October, fell in at the end of November fell into December, and it's been rising since January, February. February, we had 83% of the districts offering an in-person option. Um, so certainly uh, March will be higher, and we hope that April will be um, as well. The numbers are down, number one. We know a lot more about mitigation. Number two, we know a lot more about the virus itself. Number three, We've had people vaccinated, number four. We've got antigen testing, uh, number five. We know more about the virus and we're better protected from the virus. Um, so all of those are reasons why it makes uh, sense mm. for uh, more districts to be open. Yeah. That said, Stephen, a number of our parents are going to choose to keep their children virtual. That's completely legitimate, uh, completely understandable. Parents should have the right uh, to choose uh, the parent uh, decision to keep their children virtual is a decision that helps other parents um, send their children back to school 
with uh, thinned out numbers. Mm. It helps the social distancing. Yeah. So, so when the governor said what she did about March 1st being this date that she wanted to get more students back into classrooms, more school districts open, I, I, I really took a pause because I, I thought, well, if that's true, then we really need to make sure that teachers are getting vaccinations at, at a very fast pace. In other words, they need to go to the front of the line. That didn't happen universally. So I, I wonder if you can talk a little about how many teachers have been vaccinated at this point in, in Michigan and what provisions are going to be made for teachers who don't have vaccinations and are going to go back to classrooms where there is some risk that they could contract the virus. Well, the number of teachers vaccinated uh, grows each day. They absolutely should be a priority. With ooh, There's no question but that they should be a priority. We've had uh, a substantial majority of our districts offering an in-person option since September, with the exception of that uh, four-week period in, in the end of November into mm-hmm. December. And the power of that is that parents have been able to choose. At the same time, many have said we don't necessarily feel comfortable with um, in September, in October, in the absence of uh, vaccinations, without the prevalence of antigen testing, with uh, some of the science a little less clear. Uh, That's been changed over the last six months. Um, A good percentage of teachers um, across the state have uh, been vaccinated. Do do we know the number? Do we know the number at this point? We don't have a daily running number. There was a survey done by MEA. It indicated, I believe, a majority of teachers had been vaccinated. It is different county by county because the number of vaccinations are different county by county. In addition, it's somewhat different district by district, depending upon whether districts have chosen to go back or um, or not. Nonetheless, teachers have been prioritized substantially in the state, as makes sense. And that has created, I think, a measure of comfort for some. I will tell you that with a majority of districts open for in-person instruction, you still don't have a majority of the students receiving in-person instruction Mm -hmm. because of parent choice, which means that many, many, many teachers would still be required to provide instruction virtually. And the same true for support staff members as well. So it's not as if a switch is turning on on March 1st. That's not the case at all. Majority of the districts have been open uh, for the majority of the year. A minority of students have been in session given parent choice. But as more people get vaccinated, uh, both um, teachers, support staff members on the one hand, parents and grandparents on the other, as we know more about the virus, uh, we anticipate that the numbers of young people who are educated in person will grow. That said, 
there will be some parents that do not send their children back this year. They'll choose to keep their children virtual based on family circumstances. And that is completely legitimate without it, without a doubt. They should absolutely have their choice based on their uh, family circumstances. At the same time, though, so too should parents who want an in-person option for their children have that choice. So, so Michigan had a request to the federal government to skip standardized testing this year, uh, largely because of the disruption from, from the pandemic and the things that are kind of uneven about the way in which kids are getting uh, in, instruction. But the Biden administration has said K-12 students are going to have to take standardized tests, although it's giving districts and states some flexibility there to decide on their own how that how that looks. Give us a sense of what the status of assessments is this year in Michigan and your reaction to the idea that students will have to take these tests. Well, first of all, we believe that it's important that uh, we know where students are uh, academically in the pandemic. We think it's important for parents to know where their children are. We think it's important that educators know. We think this is important to focus resources, to focus interventions, to focus supports. We absolutely believe that that is critical. And we believe that that can be done with the benchmark assessments that we advocated for mandating and that were mandated by the state legislature this summer, signed into law by the governor. Uh, Locally chosen, locally administered, national benchmark assessments given nationally to millions of students across the uh, across the country. Um, these are um, a form of standardized test, if you will. They are not the M-STEP. They are not the state summative assessments, but they do provide us with those basic uh, points of information. Where are children? Where they need to go? What do we need to provide them in terms of supports, interventions, resources? to um, to improve upon their education. So we're not walking away from the notion of the need to understand where our children are. We simply believe that we can do it with benchmark assessments. Mm-hmm. I might add, Stephen, these are uh, assessments that are educators' tests. Educators use these in a way that they don't use uh, MSTEP. We think that MSTEP in the midst of a pandemic is a time sink. We see little value to testing uh, half the population and not testing the other half of the population. Uh, We can't do M-STEP at a distance. We can do benchmark assessments at a distance, but we can't do uh, M-STEP tests at a distance. So we we are advancing um, the belief that um, we can get what we need to get out of benchmark assessments and that M-STEP assessments are, um, quite frankly, in the midst of a pandemic, a time sink. Hmm. Uh, so I, I want to go back to this question of, of choice and, uh, and who will go back to school and who, who will not. You talked a lot about families and their choices and that their choices will remain intact. I wonder if, if there are choices for teachers and, and again, provisions for teachers who go back and maybe get, get sick, contract the virus uh, because they're at work. How, how are you handling, how are you handling that? 
So, so there are a few things. First of all, there should be choices for uh, teachers. No child, no no teacher rather, who is um, who has a substantial medical history uh, that would make him or her vulnerable to coronavirus um, should come back. That that if you have heart issues, if you have lung issues, if you have diabetes, if you if you have substantial obesity. Um, if any particular health issues um, and, and you are unnerved by that, as you should be, you should stay home. You should, you should be educating uh, children virtually. Uh, there should be choice, but that choice shouldn't impede the ability of um, young people to get an in-person uh, education. We've been in-person in many districts, but for that, a four-week period of time to which I earlier referred um, in many districts across the state without cessation. It can be done. Um, it is harder in larger districts, yes. Um, it is harder in larger schools. There's no question about that. But again, parent choice helps thin those numbers out. Um, and with parent choice thinning those numbers out, you have um, a thinning out of the need for um, a substantial number of teachers to be in person. Okay. Uh, Dr. Michael Rice, state superintendent here in Michigan. I know you have to run, but I really appreciate you being with us here on Detroit Today. Thank you. I appreciate you as well. Take care. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue to talk education. We'll talk with Education Trust Midwest founding executive director Amber Ariano about the return to classrooms for many Michigan students this week. We also want to hear from you. What are your feelings about this push to get students and teachers back into classrooms at this point in the pandemic? We especially want to hear from you if you're a parent, a teacher, or a student yourself. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phone. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking about the return to classrooms for many students and teachers as of today, March 1st. The governor said in January that she wanted March 1st to be kind of a magic date in the journey back to in-person learning in Michigan schools. Uh, that day is here, and lots of districts are going to welcome more students into their doors uh, in, in, the, in the coming weeks. Uh, we're talking about what that means, and talking about weighing the risks of in-person learning versus the value to students of being in a classroom, not just with teachers, but also with other students. We want to hear from you about your thoughts about going back to schools in this, in this way at this point in time. Do you feel like it's time for in-person learning to return in larger numbers than it has so far? Are you worried about the risks? Are you worried that we haven't done the things that we should have done to make sure that it is as safe as it could be for schools to reopen at this point? We especially want to hear from you if you are a parent or a teacher 
or a student. Uh, how comfortable are you going back to school at this point? Are you someone who is going to take advantage of this or are you someone who's still going to hold back and wait until we're at a different point in the pandemic? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter. Put comments there. We'll try to work you into the conversation. I want to welcome another voice to uh, the conversation as well this morning. Amber Ariano is founding executive director of the Education Trust Midwest. Amber, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks, Thank you, Stephen. I'm glad to be with you. Yes. So uh, let's talk about your thoughts about safety versus educational and social needs and outcomes as a lot of kids head back to classrooms in the coming weeks. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it, the timing makes sense from a number of perspectives. You know, the um, I think Michigan has been doing a great job in, um, in rolling out the vaccine to educators um, you know, we're seeing districts across the state uh, reporting back that um, all or almost all of their educators are now vaccinated. Um, there, there seems to be uh, much more comfort in the field um, about, um, you know, schools returning um, at scale. And, um, and then there's also, you know, the, the state and, and policymakers increasingly weighing the other cost of not going back to school. Um, you know, parents, many parents across the state um, pushing for kids to, to get back. Um, you know, other other challenges arising when kids are not at, at school for so many months now. Um, I'm sure you've seen reports of suicide rates skyrocketing in, in, in some states. Um, you know, we're, we're seeing um, a growing amount of evidence of, uh, about the impact this is having on um, younger children, socio-emotional well-being, including rising depression, rates of depression. Um, and then we've got, you know, really an educational recovery crisis. Um, lots of, of different kinds of research emerging on how far behind um, all groups of kids are, but especially um, low-income students, um, kids that have not had um, consistent access to the Internet. So, um, so there's, a, there's another cost, and there's, a, there's an economic cost in the long run um, when, you know, kids fall behind and, and if they're not caught up, um, what that could mean for, um, for the American economy and, and for our talent base in the, in the long run. So, so there's, there's a lot to weigh. Um, and I, I, I feel, honestly, I feel really grateful that um, I'm living in a state that um, where we, you know, have um, very low COVID levels now compared to many other states and um, that our policymakers have been really taking a thoughtful cautious approach to um, to the return to school timing. So I was just uh, talking, of course, with Superintendent Dr. Michael Rice about this date and the importance of it and the things that seem like they should have happened before now, including the vaccination of, of teachers. The, the idea that, that when the governor said, hey, March 1st is going to be this day, that, uh, that we want to make sure more people return to schools, teachers should have been put at the front of the line, I think, to, to make sure that they could all be vaccinated before the state. Of course, that didn't happen. We do have a number of teachers, of course, who have gotten vaccinations. But I wonder what you're hearing from educators about this uh -huh. return and how confident they feel that they're being cared for and looked after, e even as the pandemic kind of winds down 
there's still considerable risk to, to this kind of physical uh, proximity to other folks. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think this, the states across the country are struggling with this. And this is really um, uh, not about, you know, the um, mistakes that school districts have made um, or our public school leaders in the state, but really the challenge that we're having in producing and then rolling out, you know, the logistical challenge of, of rolling out um, vaccinations across the country at scale in a really rapid pace. Um, and, and I think that that's certainly true for elderly people, too, I, which I'm, I'm sure you know. Um, you know, we talk to a lot of educators through our work, um, and it's been interesting to see the diversity of opinion. Um, you know, I know that there are, there are some, including um, some of my own friends, that, that are nervous about going back. Um, on one hand, they're, they're um, eager to get back into the classroom. On the other hand, it's, it's a new experience. Um, you know, it, this is all new territory. You know, the, I think the experience of private schools um, that have been open since really September and for the schools that decided to open early in the state um, can kind of provide some real reassurance to educators that, that are nervous about going back. Um, particularly for elementary school students, you know, the evidence is that the rate of spread is very low. Uh, young children are actually less likely um, to catch the virus and to spread it. Um, you know, we've learned so much in the last year um, about about how to even simple things that can pr- um, pr- you know protect us from catching the virus, like how to wear our mask correctly or double masking, the quality of masks that we use, um, the social distancing that we can that we can use. So um, so I feel like those things are are giving people you know um, some reassurance that this is the right time to go back. And but you know it's funny I also hear from um, including. Um, members of our own organization who work in schools who have been um, pushing hard to go back, go back to the classroom, get back in, in person learning now for months. And so they feel like, you know, it, this is way overdue. And, um, and, and so they're, they're excited um, if, if they haven't already been back, you know, back in November, December. So again, it, it's, um, it's a, it's a tough call, you know, and again, I think the, that our policymakers are trying to weigh, the cost of not being back with the cost to being back. And, and it, it does seem like this is the right time and we'll learn if it, if um, there are, you know, um, if the spread really um, um, worsens in the, in the coming weeks, then, um, then we can pivot again as a state. Um, but I think the, the experience of private schools that have been open since last fall um, should be a good predictor that, that this should be successful. Mm. I'm talking with Amber Ariano, founding executive director of the Education Trust Midwest. We're talking about March 1st today, the big day that the governor talked about back in January as the day that she would like far more students in Michigan to be back to in-person instruction in in our schools. So we want to hear from you about how you're feeling about today. Are you about to send your kids back to school for the first time? Have you done that already? Uh, are you somebody who is maybe a little more apprehensive about the idea of in-person learning? Uh, tell us why. Tell us what will have to happen before you feel like it's okay to send your students, your children back to in-person learning. Uh, if you're a teacher, how confident do you feel that things are in place to make sure that you're safe if you go back to in-person learning. Uh, if you are uh, a, a parent or a student, uh, give us a sense 
of just sort of where you are with uh, this this whole thing, how it's been handled, how the communication has been with school districts about what's available and what's going to happen. Uh, and again, what you need to hear from school districts and from state officials about the state of the pandemic before you'll make a decision to go back to in-person learning. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, uh, and put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, uh, and we'll work into the conversation. We've got some social media comments I want to sprinkle into the conversation here. Karen on Twitter says, curious about summer school and what that might look like around Metro Detroit and Michigan. Uh, A listener on Twitter asks, how will they be compensating teachers and staff who are going to get COVID? Uh, A question that I uh, did ask uh, uh, Dr. Rice about how they were handling the risks to teachers. Uh, Diane on Twitter says, uh, please discuss ventilation in classrooms. CO2 should be less than 700 ppm. And total room air exchanges should be six per hour. If HVAC is not up to snuff, then HEPA units are required. Bad ventilation, even with masks, is bad. Uh, David on Twitter says, I'm a parent board member at Detroit Enterprise Academy Charter School and board member at MAPSA. I'm in full support of our kids going back to school. My daughter has been in hybrid and soon full day. I have full confidence uh, in our schools. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number if you want to call and be part uh, of the conversation. Um, Amber, last time you were on the show, uh, this was last summer, we talked at length about making sure there was more equity in school funding, especially during the pandemic. And uh, at the time, we were anticipating that there would be cuts in the education budget, but the worst of that did not end up happening. Uh, Talk about where we are, though, when it comes to funding during the pandemic, and are we making equity a priority even as we kind of weather still the the, the massive disruptions from COVID? Yeah, I mean, you think back to what the projections were. I mean, they were... um they were devastating. And so there were concerns that as, as many as 20 to 30 percent of educators, you know, would be laid off in the state um, by the fall. And um, and I think it's it's amazing that that, that didn't happen. Um, the economy has um, rebounded um, more than we had expected. Um, federal stimulus dollars really helped keep schools uh, more stabilized. Now, the Biden administration is, you know, not only um, rolling out um additional stimulus sellers now, um, but also now in discussions um, about um, rolling out yet another stimulus package that would be, you know, could be potentially one of the largest in in modern history um, and really focused on not just stabilizing districts, but trying to trying to um, leverage this moment to help schools modernize themselves. So there were comments on Twitter about um, uh, air quality. You know, there are there are um, districts that haven't updated the, um, th- those types of things in 50 or more years, um, and so the, the the stimulus money that's expected um, to be passed um, with support of Congress later this year is an opportunity to to address some of these issues, um, including of issues of equity. Um, we know that many school districts. Um, in Michigan, especially um, low-income districts, we're not, not just in urban areas, but in rural areas, right? Struggling with the digital divide, 
um, there's new evidence that one in one in six, um, one in four Michigan students have had not have consistent internet access since last summer. Um, you know, we we also know that um, Michigan is one of the the most inequitable funding formulas in the state, according to to um, recent studies in the last few years. Um, the gap between affluent public school districts and um, low income public school districts. Um, is in the bottom, you know, we're in the very bottom in the country in terms of how big our gap is. I mean, I should say one of the worst in the country for how big our gap is. And so um, so the stimulus money um, is really also an opportunity for us to invest those dollars to make sure that we're catching all kids up in the state, providing things like free summer school, right, that's optional for, for kids who are behind to help them recover their learning, um, intensive tutoring, um, for for kids to make sure that they're being um, being brought back up to grade level um, if they're behind. So um, a lot of really important work ahead in the next um, coming years. Um, you know, we don't want kids to become um, um, on track to to drop out of high school, on track to um, to um, earn less money for the rest of their life. We've seen this happen um, from natural disasters like hurricanes. When, um, when children's learning has been disrupted at for long lengths of time. So um, we have to, you know, learn, learn from those experiences and make sure that, that, um, that COVID-19 doesn't become, um, you know, the, um, the driver of, of losing a generation of students um, um, and, and, you know, putting them on track for, for just a, um, lower earnings, um, less opportunity for the rest of their life for something that, you know, that was completely out of their hands. So I also want to talk about this idea of behind and being behind and the way that we define that going forward. Uh, Of course, you know, school was terribly disrupted last year and even this school year, there's just been a lot of things that, that are challenging educators to, to make sure that, that students get what they need and that they know that students have gotten what they need. Uh, should we be rethinking, though, the idea of what it means to be on pace educationally and what it means to be behind? Should this this disruption kind of uh, alter the, 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 the prism through which we, we, we see those things? I think in the at the in certainly in the near term, the short term, absolutely. Um, and I think this is you know it, as a as a parent of a third grader, I can tell you that um, you know just just um, getting through some days um, between you know hybrid learning and all the other things that are going and, and working um, at the same time. I mean that that's a win many days, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so so I'm I'm very empathetic um, for from both the parent perspective and as a someone who started my career um, as a high school teacher um, for educators, right? I think everyone's doing their very best and um, and and you know that's probably what will um, that's what we need to do for the moment. Once the once we move out of this mode though and we move past the pandemic, um, really looking at data to see um, when we say behind is, what, what do we mean by that? Well, are, are, are our children on track in terms of their, their grade level for grade level college and career ready standards? Um, and that is, those are the standards that we've agreed as a country um, that, that, you know, that we expect kids to be at when they graduate from high school. Colleges expect a certain level of, of um, learning and knowledge, right, to, um, to accept them. 
Um, even even um, most employers now um, expect a certain level of skills, and um, you know, even many grocery stores will even require things like um, a high school diploma. So, so those things, those benchmarks are important, um, and um, eventually, you know, um, kids will be affected by them. And so, they, um, in the longer run, it certainly does matter. Um, and I, I I can see this in my own life. Um, my daughter really really did fall behind last year. Um, and working with her teacher, you know, we've been trying to determine based on the best available data that, that we have and what the, the school um, can provide in terms of assessments, trying to figure out, you know, how to catch her up in reading. Um, third grade reading, you know, level um, for children is a, is a predictor of all kinds of things. It's a predictor for future academic sex, mm-hmm. success. It's a predictor of whether a child will go to college. Um, it's a predictor of even of juvenile delinquency because we know when when kids fall behind and and they're not you know well equipped um, to read well for comprehension, they often fi- fall behind in school. Um, they can really become disengaged in school and then get involved in you know negative activities. So um, so you know in the long run, yeah, it's absolutely critical that we're looking at that data and that we're really like making putting a, an intensive amount of a national effort to make sure that kids are on track for their grade level. Mm. Um. I want to read one more uh, social media comment here. Uh, Carrie says, my sixth grader goes back tomorrow in Dearborn. They're going to do everything on their laptops, just like at home. I'm not crazy about the idea, but he really wants to go. And it's only two days a week. Uh, another listener on Twitter says, Romeo is back in full today after half days. My second grader is behind in reading and online efforts to improve that through school resources just wasn't cutting it. We found a resource to help improve efforts out of school and look forward to more in-school efforts. You know, it's really interesting to see the kind of calculations that uh, parents are, are having to make in, in, lots of, in lots of districts about, you know, committing to back to going in person or, or, or holding back. Uh, Amber, you mentioned that you're a parent. I'm a parent as well. Um, what's your calculation look like at this point? How how confident do you feel that uh, in-person school is the, the the right thing? Well, for me, I mean, I'm 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 so glad. Um, I mean, I I think um, my daughter's glad to be back. Um, she she went back February first. Um, at first, she said, you know, I really I really miss not being able to stay in my pajamas for school, <laughs> but. <laughs> Um, but after a week, she said, oh, mommy, it's so much better. Um, and she's learning so much more. And even her teacher said, wow, her math has really been coming along, you know, since she's since she's been back. Um, and I think this gets to, you know, again, not not this is not a, a pressure about about, you know, putting pressure on parents, whether they should put their kids right back into in-person learning or if they have that 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 choice. Um, but I think in the long run, I think this just underscores how powerful um, it is to have in-person instruction and how important our public education system is. I mean, there's been decades of research, and, and I think the pandemic will, um, research will, will underscore this, that there's no substitute for in-person learning. Mm. The relationships that kids build with their teacher, with their peers, um, with you know, with other with other adults in the building, with mentors, um, you know the the, um, the the ability to engage in the learning is is so different that kids learn so much from one another. It's so difficult to do that 
um, you know, um, it, through a Zoom call or, um, um, you know, on, on a platform. Um, and so, and I, and I, I, I found myself humbled as a parent that I was, you know, I thought I was going to be able to carry the, the, the tutoring load much better than I did. <laughs> um, and it made me appreciate like the value of great teaching. I, there are many times, um, last year when I said, okay, I thought this, I thought I was going to be able to like teach my daughter this, um, technique and reading. And I really, I really don't have this expertise. I think all of this just really underscores that great teaching is like anything else. It's, it's, it's so important. It takes real expertise. It takes, it takes technique. Um, it takes years of building um, your knowledge to on how to do this well. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm so glad that my daughter's back. She's glad to be back. Um, and I think that this is, this is not, you know, I think for parents that can make the choice, I think it's so important that they make the choice that's right for them. But many, you know, many parents don't have that choice. You know, my mom, for example, was a single mom. Um, she, she had three kids. I was her oldest child. Um, and, you know, if we would have been in this kind of a situation in pandemic, she could not have stayed home with us if she didn't if she didn't go to work, we would not have eaten. Mm-hmm. I mean, that we just, we had, we had a very working class life. Mm-hmm. And, um, and there are many parents in that situation having to make really tough calls about, do I go to work and leave my children here to, to do in-person schooling or um, virtual schooling by themselves at home? Or do I go to work and so that I can, you know, pay my bills mm-hmm. and feed my children? And that's a terrible choice for, for parents to have to make. And so with kids back in school, like, you know, the the kids are getting the support that they need, they, the relationships they need for this learning. And so um, so for so many parents, like there really isn't a choice. And, and that's why it's so important that schools are that schools have that option to be to go back in person. Hmm. OK. Amber Ariano, founding executive director of the Education Trust Midwest. Always great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for joining. Thank you, Stephen. We're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the Mars rover and what the implications of this development are for our space exploration future. Stay with us for more Detroit Today.